This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we have Andrea Van Voot, Invisible Disabilities. As part of it, a conversation around disabilities, disabilities and poverty, living with epilepsy, and so much more. Equalization was on a ballot in Alberta. It's a Canadian conversation, though, because it affects all of the provinces. Trevor Toome joins us to talk about equalization and give us a very clear understanding of what equalization looks like for all Canadians, not just those in Alberta who are voting on it. And we had, are you okay? Are you okay with camel milk in your coffee? What about a uh, camel chino with your camel milk? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay? Are you okay with rental cars? Um, My dad yeah. showed up last week for the first time in my life in a Jag. I got to ride in a Jaguar for the first time ever, and I get it. Man, that car was sweet. It had like this crazy 3D like top view backup camera. It like used CGI to generate the parking lot uh, in the dash. Uh, it was comfortable. It was cool. Uh, and yeah, so I was very okay with that rental car. I like rental cars. I think they're fun to drive. It's nice to drive something new, something you haven't driven before. I like that now there's more brands to rental cars in general. You can try maybe a Volkswagen or a Kia, stuff like that. Some can maybe cars that you're not used to. So that's fun. Catherine says, I love rental cars. Mine was, I got mine with 50,000 clicks on it. Good discount. I bought a, a rental car leaseback once. Works well yeah. for me too. Yeah, it's great. Um, are you okay with rental cars? Rental cars are there when you need them, except right now they're brutally expensive because it seems like there's not a lot of cars after COVID. Uh, whether you're, t- and everyone wants to buy the cars, so they're selling the cars. Whether you're traveling, need to get away, maybe vacation, or maybe you're renting a truck for moving. For some reason though, people really enjoy stealing U-Hauls. Hauls. Uh-oh. How did I write it? U-Hauls. That's a typo. I hauled it. I hauled it. It's a U-Haul, as in like you're hauling something with a couple oh. of U's, not a couple of L's. Oh, wait. Oh, oh no. I fixed it for the other one. Just that one okay. was felt wrong. I'm okay with oh, that. Oh, good. I'll live with well, that Well, trucks typo. don't have sore throats. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Instead of renting them, people steal them. As an example, this little gem of a story from CBS2 from back in May. Is there a reason why you didn't want to stop the whole way? This driver just hung his head down when we tried to ask him why he led officers on a pursuit across Southern California freeways for more than two hours this morning. It all started around 5 a.m. when Buena Park police spotted the 47-year-old in a U-Haul that had been stolen out of Irvine. They tried to pull him over, but he got on the freeway, driving all the way north towards Pasadena before heading back south towards Orange County. You got the heck up, you're not going to get away. So I don't understand why people still try to do these pursuits and know they're going to get caught eventually, putting everybody in danger. I don't understand that. Eventually, CHP put out a spike strip, damaging the front tires of the U-Haul. But the driver kept going, even as sparks flew from the rims. Only getting off the freeway when fire started engulfing the front cab, he jumped out of the truck in Bellflower and then jumped over fences to try and get away, taking off the jacket and backpack he's seen with in this security video and hiding it before trying to get into a nearby apartment. He asked me, you know, um, you know, if you let me come in your house, you know, I'll give you a thousand dollars right now. You know, I just need to use a bathroom for 45 minutes. I'm like, no, I'm not letting you in my house. Okay, that's a fun story. Isn't this a little gem? You are right. I think that. Uh, we have an even better example of a wild U-Haul story for you for today. A man who allegedly stole a U-Haul that had some polite words for police. He called police dispatch and asked for deputies to stop chasing him after they located the stolen truck. Around 1.40 a.m. on Saturday, Adams County Sheriff deputies in Colorado located a stolen U-Haul parked at a convenience store. Police pursued the truck, and the driver called dispatch to ask why he was being chased and asked the deputies to stop. (laughs) Deputies had to use tire deflation devices, and the vehicle finally stopped, and he was arrested. At least he's... um. This is polite, hey? I wish there was a recording of that nine of that nine one one call. Just nine one one, what's your emergency? Hey, I'm a 
Why? Why are y'all being mean to me? I just want to take my car for a ride. <laughs> I stop for a chalupa. Fine. Take him I for won't a hurt drive. Anybody? Oh man. Oh man. Um, are you okay? Are you okay with exotic animals? Ooh. I love them. I'm not sure yeah. if they should be in your house. Yeah, I don't think you should have an exotic pet. The only exception I would say is is maybe like a certain type of exotic bird that's not overly endangered. Uh, I don't like it when birds get wings clipped, though. There's some pretty cool examples on TikTok of people who have parrots and will just let them loose on this massive property. And you can see like this rainbow flying over a prairie. That's pretty neat. I mean, is it right? I don't know. But um, yeah, I think they're cool to look at. Yeah, Tiger King. That's my comment. <laughs> tigers, oh, lions. love this story then. <laughs> uh, tigers, lions, topical birds, which is the kind of birds that you can actually put on your skin if you need it. That's a typo. Uh, you name it. <laughs> Exotic animals are pretty cool. And you can't find them over here because, you know, they're exotic. <laughs> Ryan's working on the dad jokes. A few weeks ago, we raised uh, the story. We raised the story of Zome zebras. That was intentional. Zome zebras? Zome zebras that escaped a farm <laughs> in Maryland that were on the loose. It's been almost two months since they escaped, and somehow those zebras, see if you're going to do it, you do it there too, are okay, still yeah, uncaptured. Yeah. Is uncaptured a word? I'm not sure. Um, they're still mm. on the loose or free, maybe. Here's the clip. I was coming around the corner, and I saw something sitting in the middle of the road, and I knew it wasn't a deer because it was kind of bigger than a deer. Once my headlights hit it, I was just amazed it was a zebra just sitting there. But Chris told us it didn't move right away, and he had to stare into the zebra's soul. And me and him stared at each other about maybe 10, 15 seconds until I pulled out my phone and started recording it. Right when I started recording it, he trotted his way into the, into the woods. Into the darkness. Yeah, into the darkness. It is day 23 of Zebragate. Five of them escaped from a farm in Prince George's County. Wow. I wonder what staring into a zebra's soul is like. Yeah, stripey, I guess. Unfortunately, <laughs> one of those ze- one of them zebras <laughs> has been killed as the state tries Aww. to wrangle these zebras. Here's more from WUSA 9 News. The zebras originally escaped sometime around the beginning of September near the intersection of Belfield and Dooley Station Roads. But according to the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, their police officers were called to a private property on the 1000 block of Dooley Station Road in Upper Marlboro last month on September 16th. Why officials have just released this news, we don't know. Either way, that's where the Prince George's County Department of Environment found one of the three zebras caught in a snare trap that eventually died due to its injuries. Now, if you're unfamiliar with hunting, this is what a snare trap is. It's a loop, usually made of a wire or a strong string that can trap an animal around its neck or body. So what are zebras doing in Maryland in the first place? Well, we've learned that the escapees are part of a herd of 39 zebras that were moved into a farm in Upper Marlboro at the end of August. We're told the owner has valid permits to keep exotic animals. Okay, officials say the owner and caretaker of Zoo Zebras Zebras from the herd are keeping them in an enclosure at the center of Zikaral. <laughs> it's so fun when you say it that way. It is. It is. The hope is that by utilizing the foods. <laughs> and the other zebras, the Zeus zebras, will return to Zikaral. And the herd. <laughs> oh, what have I done? I'd like to apologize <laughs> to anybody who's you know, from has an accent like that. I'm sorry. That did not do you justice. Prince George's County, not the um, Canada Prince George, by the way. Yeah. Officials ask that anyone who sees the zebras to report the sightings to PGC 311. 
whatever that is. Prince George County 311. Oh, thank you. Very good <laughs> You're of you. Welcome. <laughs> You're still um, smart. This is uh, th- all I want to say with this story is this is literally Maryland's Tiger King, except instead of a tiger mauling someone in a horrible zoo, it's how a guy let a bunch of zebras roam in a U.S. state free for like a month. Mm-hmm. Striped horses. They're cool. I love zebras. They're cool. Are you okay? Are you okay with the cappuccinos? Oh, no, this is Italian now. No more German. Nuts. (laughs) C. The. uh, Isn't that Spanish? Cappuccino. Yeah. What's a. What is the Italian word for yes? I don't know. Okay, Dr. Google. I thought about that. Do it. C. Is that. Actually. Is it C? Oh, sweet. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Grazie. I don't know why you don't believe in yourself, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, why? No, I have me language believing in myself. What? Uh, cappuccinos are good, but I would always go for a latte, except one place. There's one coffee shop in Kensington uh, that does not have a good latte, but for some reason their cappuccino is amazing. Nine times out of ten, though, it's the cap- it's the latte for me. Cappuccino. Nice. We walked into the coffee store today, and the guy at the counter was like, "Hey there, want a latte?" Like he was like, yeah. he knew he exactly he's your best friend. Yeah, it's it crazy. It's a great joy in my life is walking into a coffee shop and having them know your order. It's brilliant. Uh, espresso is a pretty simple recipe too. Espresso and steamed milk foam sounds nice, right? But how would this sound to you? We have uh, the camel chino, which is the normal cappuccino, but with the camel milk, and we have the camel latte. Whoa! So not camel a cappuccino. Chino. That's right, a camel chino. It's pretty simple too. A cappuccino made with camel's milk. Huh. No, you read it. I'm not reading that. <laughs> That's uh I wrote a dad joke here. That's uh one way to get over hump day. <laughs> oh man. Because they have Guess humps. what day it is. <laughs> Guess what day it is. It's hump day. Nice. All right. Here's more from Marketplace Africa on why camel milk is becoming very popular abroad. Camel's milk has been consumed by pastoral communities for centuries. According to some studies, camel milk has been found to reduce cholesterol levels and even suggest it may help manage diabetes. In Kenya, the majority of camel's milk has been sold outside of the formal supply chain, often directly to clients and restaurants. In Kenya, we are, our assumption is that we are at the formative stages of establishment because of the many challenges across the uh, producing the quality, safety, and quantity that's needed for the market. Camel milk is contributing around 10 to 12 billion Kenya shillings into, 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 into the economy. Some are aiming to formalize the sector and bring the superfood to the masses. White gold is the next generation dairy is the milk of the future. We started it in 2017. At the moment, we are producing 500 liters a day. We are in all the major supermarkets in Kenya. We are the biggest player so far. That's an amazing story. 500 liters a day. That's, uh, I want to try it. I've never had it. Hmm. I'll try any food. That's my thing. I recommend you you buy it from a store, though. Don't just go find a camel. Yeah, I don't. Unless I go take a trip over to the Calgary Zoo, uh, I don't know where I'm going to mm. find a camel to milk. Although maybe I'll just go to Maryland and wait for a camel to evidently just go missing and wind up in a field somewhere. Excuse me, sir. What are you doing? I'm just trying to milk the camel. I'm being more environmentally friendly. Uh, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization says camel milk has triple the amount of vitamin C compared to cow's milk. Ongoing studies have also shown evidence that the milk can reduce cholesterol and improve digestive disorders as well. It can be used to make products such as yogurt. Ooh, he spelled it with a yogurt and ice cream, but it's not uh, so easily turned into butter or cheese. According to CNN, with proper infrastructure, the Kenya Camel Association says the sector could be worth an estimated $200 million annually and impact 10 to 12 million households in northern Kenya whose livelihoods rely on those animals. That's a cool story. That's a really cool story. I like story, it. Eh? I, mm-hmm. I, I would, I'd love to try it. it. It looks exactly like cow's milk. I would say it even looks whiter than cow's milk. Um, 
And if I'm honest, I don't even think I knew that camels made milk. Seriously, until yeah. today. Uh, I never really thought of that. makes sense when you think backwards, but I They've agree. They've got a pretty no crazy uh, anatomy. They've got like four stomachs. One of them hangs out of their mouth when they get hot. Do you uh, ever wonder who was the very first person who tried it? I always think about that with a cow, <laughs> right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. somebody somewhere in time went, you know what? That looks pretty good. I'm going to give that a go. This is the Shift Podcast. We have for you a conversation about disability. I'm not even sure if that's the right word. Invisible disability is a topic that Andrea Van Voot writes about. And this conversation was recorded earlier. And Andrea gave me the grace of being able to help her with this message. And she's given me her permission to read this to you after what transpired during this conversation you're about to hear. It says... Please be aware that my invisible disability is epilepsy, and I do have seizures, so there is a possibility I have a seizure during the interview. If that was to happen, I may stop talking. I could walk away from the conversation or may start saying odd things or smacking my lips. Hopefully this won't happen, but it is a possibility. There's nothing that can be done except wait three to five minutes. That's usually what it takes for the seizure to stop. I've given many speeches, presentations, and interviews, and the one occurrence of a seizure happening during the interview with one occurrence of a seizure happening during an interview. It's just a possibility that's better to address ahead of time. If you're feeling nervous about this possibility, we could have a phone call ahead and chat about it. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And that's Andrea. Um, That is the kind of kind person that she is by preparing me for what could happen during this interview. And I wanted to share with you, with her permission, that when we recorded this interview, Andrea had a seizure. So, you are about to hear this interview with Andrea Van Voot. Invisible disability is the starting topic. We're going to cover all kinds of things. You will not be able to tell in this interview when the seizure happens. You won't. It was an experience for you that I want to share the importance of understanding it and the impact that it's had on me when we're done. So, you will hear no reference to it through the course of this conversation, but I will talk about it and address it afterwards. This is my conversation with Andrea Van Voot. When we started our Facebook group, many of the comments that come in say, it's nice to put a, put a face to the voice, they say. You know, we, we make an awful lot of assumptions in this world that everybody's the same. We do. And the, one of the coolest things about the radio is that we don't know. We don't know. We don't know if somebody can't see. We don't know if somebody can see. We don't know if um, you have two legs or one leg. We don't know if you have two hands or or one hand or three hands. We don't know. It doesn't matter in radio. It's one of the gifts that we're given in this world. We don't know if you can see or not. And so when we get messages from somebody saying, hey, I appreciate the shift because, you know, I can't see and it gives me company. See, that, that means the world to us. It's one of the blessings that we have in radio land. Now, here's the thing about living with disabilities, and I don't even know if that phrase is right, uh, is day-to-day life is not so gentle as listening to the radio. And so we wanted to get into conversation about this. There's a contributor that writes a lot. Uh, She's very smart in our conversations, and I'm excited to share with you uh, a, a person named Andrea, Andrea Van Voot. And it's Andrea writes about all kinds of stories awakening around disabilities, uh, disabilities at work. And um, it's a topic that I'm really looking forward to bringing to the shift in general for two reasons. Number one, um, folks who are living with disabilities today are need to know that they have a community and they're not alone. And folks without disabilities need to know that they're also that community. And that's what the shift head uh, group is all about here, this little family at nighttime. So with that, Andrea, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is really great. And uh, this is such uh, the, the, the topics I hope to cover here with you over the course of time are, are remarkable. And I really look forward to just bringing to light what life looks like for everyone who can contribute. And what life looks like truly, and I mean truly, even if it's ugly, Andrea, what life looks like for some people that are living with disabilities uh, every day. And so 
uh, with that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why you're here? Because I know you have a, a love affair you've already shared with me with, um, you know, educating people around disabilities, curriculums and schools and those things. But how else do you arrive um, as an advocate for this? Well, first of all, my advocacy comes from my own disability. So I have epilepsy. I have one brain and one brain is scarred. So that means that I have seizures. Uh, I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was 19 years old. And uh, there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of change. And eventually, uh, some resentment led to advocacy. And so my advocacy work uh, is currently taking a passion through poverty. So I'm currently a an advocate for a group called Disability Without Poverty. Uh, We're a grassroots movement that is led by people with disabilities. And I'm also founder of an organization called Disability Pride Alberta. So pride isn't proud, not the LGBT, but we welcome, of course. Uh, And so that's where my advocacy work comes in. My own disability and the community that's growing. Now, with that, the invitation is not just folks with disabilities um the um it's it's everybody and i'm gonna i'm gonna start there and ask you please correct if my language is inaccurate my my choices of language please help me with that because i do find this confusing as a person who you hear about you know you hear marketing around different groups and they'll say you know we're not pre-people with disabilities we're people with abilities uh we're right like you And what they're trying to do is they're just trying to market the understanding. But I think it does become confusing for those who aren't surrounded by folks with with different um, disabilities on what the language is to use in the beginning. I mean, we could probably have three or four conversations just around how do we talk about it? Mm -hmm. You know what? That's actually a very personal uh, conversation to be had, the language piece, because there's still a lot of shame with uh, disability and, and being disabled. So it depends on the person. Sometimes people like living with a disability. I mean, there are so many words. There's differently abled, there's challenge, there's with a disability. I prefer disabled. So I'm a disabled woman. That's something that can be called identity first language. Uh, I, I got to that word by Um, reading a book by a person named A.J. Withers called Disability Politics and Theory, where A.J. talks about uh, living with a disability sounds like you might be living without it eventually. So, you know, unless you have this disability that's going away, aren't you just disabled? And within looking uh, at at that word, suddenly I'm tracking a bunch of disabled people in the disability community that are okay with that. Uh, it's personal. And so I usually will ask, it's a little bit safer to say with the disability, but safe isn't always better. Right. I like that. I like the personal story, the intimate part of it. You might hear somebody say, and I've heard this from people say, oh no, I'm not disabled. I live my life. I get around in a wheelchair, right? My legs don't work. And some people like the comfort of that frank, pragmatic Mm -hmm. approach of, well, what's going on? Well, I'm a normal person. It's just that my legs don't work and I have to use a wheelchair to get around. And that pragmatic approach works for people. So I guess we'll just try to <laughs> find our way. That's kind of like life, eh? Find our way through the language of it all. Mm-hmm, yes. So you write and you have this phrase that you have, um, that I I found to be the most compelling of the phrases, uh, being a word nerd, I suppose that's probably natural. Um, invisible disability. Now this to me, I took it as a couple of different ways. I sat with it and I thought, okay, invisible disabilities, probably somebody who has a disability that we can't see. For example, uh, this person walks around, looks like they live life normally, i.e. they're not using canes or in a chair or anything like that. But I also heard it from the place of invisible from the rest of society doesn't care or notice. And then that made me um, feel a little bit upset. So what is invisible disability to you? To me, invisible disability is people aren't going to notice it right away. So uh, I'll just bring up a word that that you said, the word normal. So uh, as someone, do you have a disability yourself? I haven't even asked that. No, not that I'm aware of. Um, okay. I don't know. Not that I've been diagnosed with. Yeah. So your, your idea of normal is a little bit different than uh, 
the every other person's idea of normal. So to me, a person with an invisible disability, you might not understand my accessibility needs or issues just by looking at me. Okay, that makes sense. Um, from the other side of it is the uh, invisible part, as in people with disabilities fade away, nobody cares. And I realize that's very broad, so forgive the fact of it, but I am trying to be frank about it. Mm-hmm. Is that also a, a bit of a um, a consideration in all this? I yeah, imagine? yeah. Well, you know, that didn't come to mind for me, but I like that you said it because that is a big piece of all of this. Uh, in Canada, one in five people are disabled, but we don't know that. Mm-hmm. Canada is not aware of the uh, high statistic number, so that's what you're talking about. There is we kind of fade away as a marginalized group we're not recognized as such that kind of brings up the idea of diversity and inclusion and when people are bringing up what diversity and inclusion means and representatives for diversity and inclusion disabled people are uh, not often part of that agenda it makes me land at this crossroads because when you say one in five Mm -hmm. that means that somebody in our family really statistically fair ball i think um and when I look at my family, I don't think we talk about these things. And it, it, it doesn't it seem strange when you take that lens that we don't really understand what goes on in this community, what life is like, yet one in five means somebody pretty close to us is experiencing some sort of assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we don't talk about it. So if we talked about it and we said, okay, you know, my uncle Bob is, uh, he's epileptic. My Uncle Bob has petty malls, and uh, now through the course of decades later with um, treatments changing, he's way better now than he used to be. Um, we used to call them flip-outs, that's what we used to call them <laughs> back in the day, because he would just kind of be a switch, and he would just mm. kind of turn off for a second. And um, then he would come back, and usually he'd be tired and need to have a nap, and then he would be back at it. You know, half a day later, he'd be sort of back to his normal self. My... Uh, my ex-wife's dad, he was legally blind. Um, his was from brain injury. And I say legally because he could still see a little bit. He could watch the TV fuzzy and stuff. Uh, he could uh, meander his way around. He was so much fun. And one day I let him drive the shopping cart at Canadian Tire because his wife would never let him drive the shopping cart because it was frankly kind of dangerous. So, But he was super fun and he was fun and playful with all of it. And he would giggle his way through the day because he would bump into things. And that was, that was the lens that he chose. And so I let him drive the shopping cart and we were going through Canadian Tire. And uh, I looked away for one second and he took out a magazine rack and we laughed and cleaned it up together and everything else. And so when I look at my family for the one in five, it is much closer to me than if you had said to me, do you know anybody, is there anybody in your life who's disabled? It's much closer to me than I would have ever have imagined. Do we need to look at our lives like that and start talking about it from that way? Because people are people are people and they're around us all the time. I think part of the stigma is just the word disabled itself. And so it uh, people evaluating the word disabled as in a person being able to do it or not do it. Yes or no. Uh, disabled is is larger than that. Uh, and when you evaluate someone's disability, it doesn't mean a yes or no. It is just a part of the person. How do we change that? How do we live it? How do we love it? I mean, I imagine it's just, we go through life. That's it. Actually, there's no other statement. We go through life with these, these people and, and love them. Is that, is it as simple as that? Or is that one of those, it's simple, but it ain't easy statements? Well, we do what we're doing right now. So uh, you and I talking about disability, you speaking with a disabled person, me, you talking about the people in your life that have disabilities, um, understanding that that there are some doors that close because of disability, but that doesn't mean all doors have to close. And so understanding that there is the one in five and uh, and reaching out and learning about those one in five. Okay. Government assistance, Canadian disability benefit. 
We have mm-hmm. so many topics here, Andrea, that we can go on. And um, so I, there is an invite for you to come back so we can talk about things like poverty. We can talk about the education system. We can talk about, um, you know, living with epilepsy, which is your experience. Uh, but let's start with the basics. What kind of help are folks getting uh, in the world today from the Canadian government? So the Canadian government uh, gives a variety of help. Uh, I can speak for myself when I was receiving help uh, from uh, when I was working as a makeup artist. I was receiving some insurance money from the makeup artist and uh, company and then also some CPPD money. So an amount that was anywhere between a total of 1100 to 1300 Uh People across Canada receive different amounts depending on where they live in Canada. So, for example, in Alberta, where I am, they have something called Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped, where people that are on age get $1,684 a month. Uh, People that live in New Brunswick get $705 uh, a month. So... Depending on the province or territory, your monthly rates are different. Uh, Also, the rates of poverty are seen as different across Canada. So there are no definitive numbers per group or or person. Have those numbers changed to keep up? I mean, we've seen in the news cycle, cost of housing affordability was a big part of the election. Um, You know, the cost of rent. Those kinds of things. Have we seen changes in in your example in Alberta, the age, for example, and and similar programs across the country? Have they been able to keep up with the times or is it way behind? Um, It's behind, so it's not indexed. Uh, For a while it was, but now with prices rising and uh, cost of living changing, it's no longer indexed. So whether or not the cost of living goes up, the amount people receive is still the same. How hard is it to live on that? Uh, For me, you know, it it was hard because you stay in the circle of poverty that doesn't allow change. And so um, you have have to share a home with someone, which is, that's fine. And you uh, have to be very thrifty with groceries and be careful with transportation and uh, ABCD, which many of people without disabilities have to do, but you you have the chance of losing uh, your disability pay by doing anything outside of the right. box. So, so if I, for instance, wanted to go back to school, uh, I could only take two classes at a time in order to c- continue receiving my payments. So suddenly it's going to take me 15 years to go back to school. That's oh, that incredibly thing. limiting. And I would imagine, say, if you had a hobby like knitting or crochet and you wanted to sell knitted hats online and you had help to get those things online and do that, that kind of, as you know, people call it the side hustle would probably start to infringe on your, on your benefits that you get because you're making other income. Yeah. You have to claim everything. Uh, handcuffed is what comes to mind. Is it living handcuffed? Mm-hmm. Living handcuffed. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do have gratitude that we have some of this money in Canada, but it's really hard to get out of it. And uh, I think that a lot of the citizens of Canada don't realize how many people are living in this situation. Um, employers, we have a lot of people who are small business owners who listen to this program, getting up in the morning, getting ready for their day at work. What do you say to employers? Because uh, we have an invitation here, of course, through the uh, course of our next couple of visits around inviting community to just to participate in general. So let's start with employers, Andrea. What do you, uh, how do you invite employers to be involved in this and have the patience? Because not everybody can work an eight-hour workday nonstop. How do you, uh, how do you invite an employer to learn more about this and to participate? I would say first, uh, speak with your your current employees about disability. Uh, have an understanding of what that means. So that one in five, if you can name those disabilities and you can let your current employees know about your support for them, then they're more willing to, one, talk about their own disabilities, but two, welcome other people to take part. So, you know, within Statistics Canada, there's lists of 
disabilities where, you know, ABCD, Alzheimer's, ADHD, um, et cetera, et cetera. When you first think disability, you don't always think ADHD um, or diabetes, et cetera. So as an employer, talk to your current employees about uh, what disability is and allow them to open up their own box and then going from there, make it a conversation that can be had among each other. So when I was working uh, at an engineering company, one of the first things I did uh, after I, I was hired was I, I held a little e event, I guess you could call it, or workshop about epilepsy and about what to do with seizures, et cetera, et cetera. And that way, uh, at, at the end of the conversation, I said, if any of you want to talk about this or this makes you nervous, then you know, feel free to come to me. And suddenly uh, these people that may have otherwise been a little bit scared about epilepsy and seizure, et cetera, felt okay to come to me and talk about it. How do you deal with diminishment? I, I, the word dim comes to mind, meaning that somebody with diabetes might just say, um, well, you know, I get my insulin shots. I don't consider it a disability, whatever, whatever. You know, here's Andrea. She has epilepsy and lives with epilepsy. My problem's not that bad. Um, I would imagine there's it's speculation, I suppose, but I would imagine there's an awful lot of people that hide it, don't share it, or don't even get help because the the air quotes, it's not that bad. How do you mm -hmm. how do you get to those people? Um, you just share your own honesty, right? Share what it what it means to you. And allow disability to be brought into popular culture. Uh, if people that aren't feeling like they're not disabled enough hear others talking about disability and think, well, I do have diabetes and this person's calling it disability. Maybe I look at this word a little bit differently. Uh, I, I understand that idea of not disabled enough to use the word disabled because it's a scary word. Right. It's we've been trained to think that that uh, disability means you can't. So uh, if you want to, to me, if you want to call it disability, if you want to call it disabled, then then go for it. Um, for disability, Pride Alberta, I've been asked, how do you consider someone disabled? And I just say if they say it is, then it is. So whether it's you broke your finger and you can't open the door this way or if you have no list of your, you, you can't use your legs. And if you say it's disability, then it is. It's an inspiring conversation, Andrea. Do you know that? I hope so. It very yeah. much is. Okay, here are some topics I would like to uh, talk to you about in the future. I want you to come back. And I hope you accept the invite because I want to learn about what, what your ideas of what curriculum looks like. I mean, you're a fantastic writer. I've read your stuff from the star. Um, uh, I want to know what curriculum looks like being educated about disability. I want to look like what I want to know what community support looks like. I want to know what employment looks like. My business partner as an epileptic, I mean, he, with medication, he was able to get pretty clear on it. Um, his personality became very obsessive in general with the combination of his DNA plus his medications. So that turned into things like alcohol and drugs as well. He's recovered and he's clean and everything else. He lives now, he's married with a baby and he retired as a multimillionaire. I mean, he's just been able to harness his life because he had support from his family. Uh, and he's so smart and I think of him and I think of, you know, how many other people are living handcuffed when they could find success in their own way. Um, I don't mean mm -hmm. that they have to do it like he does. Um, and I want to mm -hmm. talk about this poverty thing because I think there's an awful lot of people here that listen to the radio that are living with disability and poverty. So uh, I hope you'll accept the invite to come back so we can dig into all of these things more because it is inspiring, Andra. Uh, you've inspired me. Well, I'm happy to be here, Shane. I'm happy to have the conversation. And I mean, the word inspire goes both ways, right? Because we're learning from one another here. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Last night was election night, and on the ballot in Alberta, equalization payments. Should, Albert, should Albertans 
change the way they go about this. Now, that's an Alberta conversation. And I understand that most people in Canada don't even understand what equalization is. It sounds like, I'm an Albertan, so I can say this. It sounds like Alberta's greedy, they want to keep all the money. And that's absolutely could not be less accurate of what it is. What it is, is the word equalization. And that key piece there, equal. For me, as an Albertan, equalization is a national conversation. This is not an Alberta conversation. This is a conversation that affects all of the provinces, very heavily in the Maritimes and Manitoba. Other provinces have sort of dipped in and out of the uh, the pool of equalization, but there have been some consistent failures of the system. That doesn't mean the system's broken. It just means there are failures. Trevor Toome is here to talk to us about that because this gets him really excited <laughs> and he loves this stuff. Trevor, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing time because I needed an expert to help us understand the impact here. We often look at um, equalization as an Alberta problem. Is equalization a Canada problem? So it's a Canada issue, no question. And at some point or another, it is a problem for basically every provincial political party, left, right, center, in every region of the country. You can find strong opposition by Dalton McGuinty, Liberal Premier of Ontario, actually not that long ago, only about a decade or so ago, or or Danny Williams in Newfoundland and Labrador. So it's it's an issue that touches on all regions of the country and indeed all Canadians because it is about $21 billion this year of federal revenues. And so it's something that is of an amount that really should concern all Canadians. And because provincial governments have a direct stake in it, uh, tension, tensions can sometimes uh, rise. Let's talk about the obvious first. Uh, Alberta has the biggest pool of resources. Saskatchewan's pretty big too, but Alberta has the biggest active pool of energy in this country. And the money from that, the deal was, is, hey, we're not going to keep it all. Um, the duty as a province is to share a portion of this with the rest of the country to help provinces that don't have resources. That's kind of how it's basic. That might be overly simplistic, but a, a fair a fair shot at it. Well, I guess I'll, I'll critique one aspect of that description, and that's not that any uh, provincial revenue source is actually shared with anyone else. So every penny of resource revenues that flows to the government of Alberta or the government of Newfoundland and Labrador or hydro revenues that flow to BC, Quebec, and, and so on, that all stays with the provincial government. Equalization is funded entirely out of the pot of federal general revenue. So the same pool of money that they use to fund their office supply budget and paperclips and so on pays for equalization. So each of us as individuals, as individuals and families and businesses paying federal taxes, income taxes, the GST, corporate income taxes, and so on, all goes into that giant federal pot. And it's from there that equalization is paid out. So provinces can keep their own revenue sources. And this all is drawn from the feds. So then how do we get this uh, storyline that Alberta gave Quebec $30 billion? Is it accurate or is it just misunderstood? So I, I think the language here is sometimes, I guess, massaged in a way that makes it seem as though it's the government of Alberta contributing funds and therefore is part of the reason why we have a large deficit in the province. But this is all about federal revenue and spending. And because different provinces have different levels of economic strength, different employment rates, different income levels, the average amount of revenue raised uh, by the federal government is higher in high-income provinces than it is in low. And a lot of federal spending is tied to things like demographics. Old age security is a huge elderly support program, CPP, things like that. And that flows disproportionately to older regions, uh, the Maritimes, BC, Quebec as well. And Alberta being high income in general, or a population that on average has high incomes and is young, there's a pretty big gap between federal revenue and federal spending of about $20 billion per year. And that is legitimately, from like an economic perspective, an outflow from the provincial economy as a whole, rather than from the provincial budget itself. So there's certainly a lot of redistribution going on, no question, uh, but it's not government to government horizontally, if you will. 
That makes sense. So, I mean, Alberta, because of resources, gets the more cash flow, then it's just natural that more goes out the door. And um, the amount that comes back in for reinvestment seems to be somewhat out of balance versus some of the other provinces based on all kinds of long list of reasons. Yeah, like if you look at the share of our uh, the share of Canada's population that lives in Alberta, we have a smaller share of federal revenue. That sorry, a smaller share of federal spending that is then spent in Alberta than our population, and a larger share of federal revenue raised uh, from the province than our population. I think about seventeen percent or so. If you look at the past decade and a bit, to federal revenue comes from Alberta, though only about twelve percent of Canadians live here. So it's. Um, really a function of income, function of age, but yeah, it's also in part a function of other uh, federal spending decisions. Okay, so let's break it down. So BC has, um, for the most part, been independent, has many different industries of its own, and at times has, I believe, taken money, not very often. Um, Alberta technically has never really received, uh, you know, the the other end of it. And I, I'm simplifying with the taking money, giving money. So sure, yeah, yeah. please allow the simplicity of that. Saskatchewan has lots of resources. Manitoba kind of, you know, geographically, Manitoba is uh, half of it's the shield, Canadian shield, right? So it's not all farming like we might assume. There's that. It's a large farming community and industry, but it's that sort of southern pocket only. Then some mining up in the north, but not a ton uh, in general, uh, today versus the past. Then you have Ontario and very industrial, right? For the most part, has had good times and bad times. The Maritimes, just not big enough to really have massive economy contributions. Then there's Quebec. Quebec has hydro. Quebec always talks about, we don't need your resources. So why is it that Quebec always seems to get, even though they're posting surpluses, uh, flush with cash from these programs? There's a couple of things to unpack there. And I think that I'll come back to hydro because that is a really interesting issue in the formula. But Quebec's economy in terms of the overall amount of income that's generated on average in the province is lower than the Canadian average. So their economy is indeed a little weaker than average. Now, how do they fund the kind of generous public services that they have given that weaker economy? Well, their tax rates are much, much higher than what we see in any other province. Compared to Alberta, across the board, their taxes are roughly double uh, what we have in Alberta. So they do raise more revenue as a provincial government by choice. And there's pros and cons of that choice, of course, but their economy is no question um, weaker than Alberta's. If we exclude resources completely, so ignore oil and gas, ignore hydro, ignore forestry, everything, just look at personal income and corporate income taxes and consumption taxes and property values, then Quebec's ability to raise revenue is higher than uh, the Maritimes, but not that much higher and roughly in line with Manitoba. So they can raise if they had just average taxes, so not their high tax rate, but if Quebec had average taxes, they would raise about $10,000 per resident per year in revenue, whereas Manitoba would raise about $9,800 per resident per year. So not not all that uh, different, whereas Alberta forget resources, we'd raise nearly $13,000 per person per year. So that's in part why Quebec receives significant equalization payments. Okay. So in a household, when a divorce happens, uh, child support payments are based on your taxes and they're based on last year's taxes. They're based on the most complete year of income. Now it seems somewhat logical to say you have to complete the, the, the income year before you can decide what next year looks like. Of course, the way that the system works is that, you know, January 1st is the new year. Your taxes aren't due till the end of April. Then they're filed. Then you have your meetings with, you know, maybe your lawyers for your ex-spouse and you talk about it and you're already not only potentially a year behind if a job change happened in January the year previous, then you've also got six months delay because of the system and all the paperwork. That could be a year and a half delay. Is that the part that's broken? Because it's the same for the provinces, because it's basically kind of like child support, that if the distribution of money is so incredibly delayed, Alberta gets pommeled because of maybe policy or economics, market economics, um, a year and a half later, still paying out money when the, the, the forecast looks a little bleak for the provincial coffers. Is, is it like that? 
Well, well, luckily the oil price right now looks like it's improved oh, quite a bit. Let's hope it stays good. there for yeah, a while. No, no, but you're you're right about this lag in in uh, just the way the system operates. Some of that's unavoidable because you have to have data in order to calculate uh, payments. Numbers. Yeah, and so if we look at the equalization payments this year, 2021, we're using data from 2017 through to 2019 to calculate it. So there is a pretty big lag, no question. And equalization is not therefore meant to be this rapid response program. It's kind of there to think about persistent structural gaps. And that's why there's a second program that's called the fiscal stabilization program. That's meant to be a rapid response support for provinces that experience these kind of sharp and sudden declines like Alberta has. The trouble with that program is it did pay out to Alberta. We had a very large drop in revenues in 2015, 16, again in 2019, and uh, the stabilization payments that we received were about $250 million per year those years, even though they're multi-billion dollar drops in revenue. So the government here has raised that as a big, serious concern that the stabilization program is, is limited in size, not really providing a lot of material support to governments that need it. Through COVID, uh, the feds did expand the size of that stabilization program, tripled it. So it does look like Alberta's on track to get $750 million for the COVID fiscal year. That's still pretty modest. And so the government here is still raising concerns. And I think there's a lot of merit to those concerns because a program like stabilization is there to be the rapid support during times of of recession that provinces go through. And so that's where I think that attention should be rather than equalization. Well, that makes sense. And it also makes sense if the number's too small, whereas review the conversation where we talked about small provincial economies versus large provincial economies and maybe percentages and so on become far more balanced than $250, I would imagine, $250 million to PEI would be uh, a lot of money, right? So- you can yeah, see interesting. The there. Yeah, for PEI, under the prior program, they would not be allowed to receive more than nine dollars. Wow! Uh, so it, it's capped on a per person basis of sixty dollars. So yeah. it, it's pretty small. It's not a it's not a program that provides a lot of real support. That's like a bridge in a hockey rink. Thanks for saving the economy, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't have the same impact. Okay. So Albertans were voting on this equalization idea. Should, uh, do Albertans support the equalization notion, I suppose, as it stands right now, it's been spun to Albertans as leverage with the government. And, uh, for me, it's always been a sort of a political distraction to try and rally the troops behind, behind it. But truly is it, uh, leaving all that stuff aside, is it actually broken or is it just inefficient at this point? So it's a program that over the years, and it's been around since the 1950s, has gone through lots of really significant changes because economic circumstances change, fiscal circumstances change, demographics change. So it's a program that ought to be reviewed and reformed continuously in an ongoing fashion. And I think it is about time for us to take a look at this program, no question. The last time it was kind of changed in a major way was back in 2007. And some of the features that may have made sense in the financial crisis don't make as much anymore. And COVID's really changed the landscape a little bit, combined with us being right now in the thick of the aging population and retiring baby boomers. Um, we need to take another look at these transfer programs, not just equalization, but health and social as well. So I'm strongly of the view that equalization does need to be changed. There's lots of features of the formula that's really less than ideal. I, I do worry if the referendum is a, the right way to achieve that objective, or does it um, does it serve to inflame or polarize yeah, uh, this issue, making it more difficult for what might be really sensible reforms to actually be undertaken? And I guess well, we'll see. It doesn't say, I mean, I mean, that's probably a political scientist question, but the reality is, is that it doesn't take a referendum to start the conversation, I don't think. I'm pretty sure it's as simple as a pretty good meeting between all the provinces going back to the feds and saying, hey, by the way, it's time. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've never had a referendum on equalization before, and yet the program has changed dramatically over the years. And in, in 2007, the former government under Prime Minister Stephen Harper implemented this current formula that was actually, interestingly, designed by an Albertan, like on the public service side. And it's a, it's a real improvement over the past formula, no question. Um, it's time to change it, though, and that does just require that our elected representatives roll up their sleeves and get in there. Well, it's interesting. If I'm a Quebecer, I'm looking at this conversation going, well, wait a second. If these guys are getting all this money provincially, I mean, you can even just look at the Newfoundland power deal alone and the way that's been dealt with to say this government's taken way too much from us. So as a Quebecer, I find that this conversation actually should upset Quebec people more than anybody else. My concern was, and I think you answered that, was could you imagine if Manitoba wasn't getting supported properly? while Quebec was seeing this extra stuff. But based on the numbers, it seems pretty well balanced, unless I'm missing something. So there, I'd say for the most part, the program does succeed at providing support to provinces that have weaker economies. No question the Maritimes would not be able to deliver reasonable health or education if they didn't have support through a program like Equalization, though. Quebec's an interesting case because... While their economy is weaker than average, they do have a, a stronger ability to raise revenue as a province than maybe the formula reflects. And hydro is a big part of that. So raising revenue through hydro means selling electricity. And it means selling electricity largely to your own residents. And so what price you set for electricity affects directly the resource revenues that the province has. And so, for example, this year, they are receiving $13.1 billion as an equalization payment. If they were to just increase electricity prices by $0.02 cents a kilowatt hour, and they would still remain below, far below electricity prices elsewhere, their equalization payment would fall to $10.7 billion. So there might be a real issue there with Quebec hydro pricing. And so there, that's one of the areas where the formula may need to where we need to maybe think a little bit differently. Well, and not to mention that they buy for below cost on that contract with Newfoundland, which is also yeah. a stinker of a deal. Exactly. Um, for, and, for Newfoundland, And so anyway. while I think that Quebec will receive something, no matter what kind of formula you have in mind, because their economy is just slightly below average, maybe the amount that they do receive is affected by some um, policy choices that they make. This could be too much of a poli sci. If it's not your, if it's not your world, um, feel free to decline. But uh Optically, it's quite kind of brutal when the conversation is we won't take an oil pipeline, but we'll take oil dollars uh, because the notion is we want to sell more electricity. So, of course, they're going to push green agendas. Um, is it as simple as that to be clear that, you know, that sort of politicking and agenda is at play here? Because I think that's the real stinker for most Canadians. When you look at Manitoba, for example, if you took that, if you took the, the $3 billion differential that you just spoke of, just something simple. And that got spread out between some of the smaller provinces in Manitoba. That has a major impact. So, you know, optically it stinks, Trevor. Yeah, so I'm not going to disagree with you there. I can't speculate about what motivates provincial government choices in one area or another. And I'm sure that uh, we have critiques about Quebec. They might have critiques about policy choices made here. But you're absolutely right to note that this affects other recipient provinces as well. So Manitoba, in this two cent example that I just gave, Manitoba would get 200 additional million dollars. Uh, so that's a 10% boost in their equalization payment. So there, there is a fixed pot of dollars. And that means if, it, if a dollar is going over here to one province, it's not going to another. And that's why it does matter that we get the formula right, because we want to allocate those dollars in a way that actually reflects genuine uh, challenges that provincial governments face because we don't want to subsidize choices um, so much as support provinces in difficult circumstances. My takeaway from this conversation is absolutely this is a Canada conversation. And I'm not sure the political grandstanding of a referendum is the right way to go about it. I, I don't, I, to me, it's a political distraction. As much as I actually would, I agree with Trevor, I would like to see this happen and get changed, but I don't think the referendum, I just think it's just drama. And But really, if it's going to be a referendum, this is a referendum for Alberta, for British Columbia, for Manitoba, for the Maritime Provinces, the ones who get affected by all of this. And I think those people need to have a say 
in the way this goes. And that's why I think it's a national conversation. Couldn't agree with you more. It's beautiful. Trevor Toom, thanks so much, buddy. It's nice to see you. It's been like over a year. It, it has been. And what a year. Well, yeah. appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks. It's great to see you. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.